I am here today on behalf of the Eminence Scholars Archive with Mrs. Cherry Hawkins, a trailblazing woman in law whose career here at the University of Cambridge has stretched uh, five decades, if you can believe it. Um, and it's, uh, it's a great privilege to interview you. Uh, if I could, I'd like to start just by summarizing your career so that uh, those who are listening who don't already know can get an idea of who you are and what you have accomplished. Um, you were born in 1941, I believe in Abingdon. No, in Salisbury, Wiltshire. Salisbury. Ah, okay. Um, you came to the University of Cambridge here in 1959 as a Curtin College where you studied law. You completed your LLB in 1963 and then uh, embarked upon graduate studies. And you were also training for the bar at that time. You were called by Gray's Inn in 1965. Uh, and then you completed a master's degree in 1966 and became a fellow of Girton College. Is that correct? No, I didn't have a, a master's degree. Ah, oh, you did not? No, no. Okay. Um, my mistake. Uh, <laughs> uh, but you did uh, become a fellow of Girton in 1966. I became an official fellow in official 1966, fellow. having been a research fellow. I see. Uh, so you're a research fellow. Yes, from 1964 to 66. I assume that you were doing graduate studies then. Well, I was, but <laughs> but as a fellow from 64 to 66, okay. so, uh, under a fellowship um, funded by the uh, International Law Fund and the British Institute of International and Comparative Law. Excellent. And so in 1966, as an official fellow, you became a lecturer and a tutor. Yes. And then, just to give a, a grand arc from 1966 until your retirement in 2007, uh, arguably but for a five-year period in the 1970s when you took a pause, you um, uh, occupied a variety of positions, a director of studies at, uh, at various colleges, an examiner, an assessor, a supervisor, um, a career that spanned 41 years uh, by a linear count. Um, from 1974 until the year 2000, you were assistant editor of the British Yearbook of International Law. And uh, from 1996 to 2006, you were a convening editor and then the note editor of the Cambridge Law Journal. And at the early end of your career, and then in retirement, you were a prodigious indexer. Yes. <laughs> um, so if we could start at the beginning, you were born in Salisbury and raised... Um, um, yes, my, I was born in Salisbury. My father was a scientist and he worked at the Port and Down Research Station near Salisbury. And um, we stayed there until I was six. At that point, he was one of the first members of staff of the Atomic Energy Research Establishment at Harwell. So we moved to Abingdon which was then in Berkshire, but now is in Oxfordshire. Right. So Abingdon really is the place where I grew up. Okay. And uh, was, uh, so your father was, was a scientist, obviously. Um, and, and I'm just wondering what was important about your upbringing that led you to uh, stay on in academia, to pursue university studies and that? It's difficult to say. I think I always assumed that I would probably go to university. Um, my brother, who was uh, nearly 10 years older than me, um, so he, he went, came to Sydney Sussex College um, when I was still quite young. And I think I assumed that that was the sort of thing you did. Uh -huh. Also, one of my father's sisters was an Oxford mathematics don. Mm -hmm. So I was used to the idea of academic life. Right. But I never had any thought of becoming, uh, having a career in academic life at that stage. Oh, certainly not. <laughs> and how did you come to study law? That, there wasn't any history of law in my family. Um, when I was, I think it was when I was in my O-level year at school, uh, an old girl of the school came to 
give us a talk about law as a career for women. She was a solicitor, I think, in quite a small provincial firm somewhere. Do you recall her name? I think it was Anne Ashton. Anyway, um, she made it sound a very interesting sort of work. So I tried to find out a little bit more about it and I looked at a few books and thought, yeah, this looks fun. And so it was just like that. I did um, Latin, Greek and ancient history for A-level. Classics. And, yes. Uh, and, but although I liked uh, the Latin and Greek in particular, not so much the ancient history. Um, I, I, I didn't see a lot of future. I didn't particularly want to become a teacher of those subjects. So I thought, well, I'll try and do law. And being a solicitor sounded a good idea. So that was my aim right. when I applied to read law at university. Excellent. And you were one of two students in your year? Yes, I was. Um, the other one was at Newnham. Uh, she's Baroness Cohen of Pimlico, as uh -huh. she now is. Uh, there, there was somebody else admitted in my year at Girton, but after a week she changed to archaeology and anthropology. So um, I was one. the only one in my year at Girton. In later years, a few people changed over, but there were never more than single figures across the university of women reading law in those days. No, I'm sure not. <laughs> oh, of course, it all changed uh, in the late 1960s, um, largely thanks to so many of the men's colleges starting to go mixed. And that meant there was much more opportunity for women to come to Cambridge to do their all. Right, and possibly the cultural revolution that was taking place. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Some. Are there any instances you recall that to stand out as, as being the, the, this lone female and it's this, this sea of men as, as a law student? Um, I think it was something I got used to very quickly. Uh, but everybody was always amazingly courteous. <laughs> um, we, we weren't really made to, to feel isolated at all. I think the, the time that, that sticks in my mind, um, this is jumping on slightly, but to the end of my second year, when I'd obtained um, an International Law Fund scholarship for the long vacation, to work in Clive Perry's team on the British Digest of International Law. And I was called for an introductory meeting in Clive Perry's rooms in Downing. And when I walked in, I was the last to arrive. Eight men rose to their feet simultaneously. And as a rather shy 19-year-old, I felt a bit daunted by this. But other than that, no, I can't remember anything much. Right. Oh. Ed, do you have any recollections of your experiences as, as, a, as a fresher at, at Girton College? Well, it was all tremendous fun. Um, I very quickly got involved in a lot of university music um, because I played the viola. Uh I think Girton was a happy, friendly place. Um, at that stage, in some ways, it was very like uh, the Girton you read about in Rosamond Lehman's book, Dusty Answer, that we used to gather late in the evening and talk and talk and talk. Men had to be out of the college by half past ten. And um, after that, even those who'd had visitors for quite a large amount of the evening, we used to gather together and talk and talk and talk. <laughs> and the formed friendships that yes. last a lifetime. 
Very much so. Yes, I'm still in touch with a number of my Gurdon friends because uh, although I was the only one in my year doing law in the first year, um, somehow or other the modern linguists, who were quite a large group, took me under their wing. So I have a, a number of um, modern linguist friends. Well, and, you know, uh, linguists are, are very appropriate people to break bread with if you're a lawyer. Well, yes, 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 sure. So mm. um, you completed your undergraduate, and yes. whilst doing that, you started working with the... Um, with the British Digest. British Digest, yes. Yes. Is that what led you to the, the fellowship after? Yes, it is, yes. Um, I, I, I did that in the long vacation at the end of my second year. Um, and the, what we did was um, we worked in the Foreign Office Library, which was in those days in Stamford Street near Waterloo Bridge. And uh, we were going through files and files and files in the Foreign Office Library to try and extract material involving legal advice. Um, the British Digest, which sadly never really uh, fulfilled its potential, only five volumes were ever published, but those five volumes related to the first phase, which was 1860 to 1914. By the time I joined the team, we were looking at the files for the period after 1914. The idea was to go up to 1960. And um, the great thing was to, to be able to spot the handwriting of the Foreign Office legal advisors, um, notably uh, Sir Cecil Hurst, Sir Eric Beckett, Sir William Morkin, because if you saw their handwriting, you knew that a point of law was involved right. in the particular subject matter. And uh, also the really big things went to the Secretary of State and one would see a big C often in red pencil. And that meant that uh, Curzon had seen it. He was uh, then the Foreign Secretary. Right. So um, that, that was the way it worked. So I did that during my second long vacation. And I was there again for six weeks the following summer. Um, and then I embarked on the international law section of the LLB. And at the, when I'd done that, um, I was registered as a research student and Clive Parry was my supervisor. And the whole idea <laughs> was that I would work under his guidance um, on the British Digest. And that was your uh, your, your uh, fellow, your work as a fellow? Was, yeah, was yes. Yeah, well, what happened then was um, the original idea was that I would do the volume on treaties for the first phase of the British Digest, for which the material had been collected by earlier working parties. But um, shortly after I'd started to get cracking on that, Clive Parry, who was a person of, of great vision and imagination, he had come to realize that there was actually a great shortage of organized materials about international law and the state practice of this country. And he realized that one thing that was completely lacking was any comprehensive list of treaties concluded by this country. And the Foreign Office had no idea of some of our treaty engagements. Although there was an official United Kingdom treaty series, by no means all um, treaties concluded by this country were published in it. And in any case, that I can't remember now when that series was started, but there was a wealth of much older stuff. And so Clive set me to work 
on making a complete record of the treaty engagements of this country, um, using obviously the the published sources, United Kingdom Treaty Series, the United Nations Treaty Series, things like Hertzlitz, Map of Africa by Treaty. But the really interesting part for me was going back to the very early stuff and looking um, to some extent in what the university library has in the Anderson Room collections, um, but also going to the public record office and seeing the original documents. And we went right back to 1101, which is the first known treaty made by this country. very clearly what treaty that was. It was with the Duke of Flanders. And um, so that project really took over. And of course, this was long before the days of computers. Yes. So everything had to be recorded by hand. Um, frequent trips to the public record office, uh, looking at all these dusty old documents. Briefcase full of. Well, yes, 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 yes. We devised a um, a single sheet on which all the relevant information about parties, subject matter, date of entry into force, dates of signature and ratification, so so of all these. Yeah, it had a form, yeah, and and um, just piles and piles of these forms. And you did you single-handedly create an index? Um, yes. No, I. Well, I. Um, I had one or two assistants for short periods, um, sort of uh, students who needed a bit of holiday money. Um, again, it was Clive Perry who organized all this. But essentially, I did the donkey work. We got a typist to type up a lot of the forms. And then he and I together went through them and um, sort of sorted things out and resolved it. Because we needed to index the subject matters as well as the parties, oh, yes. and uh, really so so we conferred a great deal. But so you that. created a, an index, you and, and uh, yeah, yeah. He was he was he was the senior editor, and I was the junior. <laughs> you and Mr. Perry yeah. created a comprehensive index. Yes, of all treaties signed by Britain from eleven oh one. To 1968, and that was published by Her Majesty's Stationery Office. In three volumes, was it? Yes, yes, it was. Do you, just off the cuff, do you remember how many roughly treaties that was? Oh, no, I'm afraid I can't tell you that. <laughs> Gone out of my mind. And, and, and how long did that take? When was that completed? Um, it, was, it was completed, uh, it was actually published, I think, in 1971. I can remember reading... Proofs late in 1970. It was 1970. Oh, well, perhaps it did actually come out in 70. So, mm-hmm. okay, and that was um, commencing around 1963. She started that work. Yes, it was. Yes. Um, um, yes, it must have been. Mm. And around the same time, you were also training for the bar. Well, not exactly. Um, in those days, <laughs> you could get called to the bar simply by eating the right number of dinners and passing the bar finals exams because a law degree exempted you from the um, intermediate exam. Uh, And it was generally thought to be sensible for somebody who might go on to have an academic career to get a professional qualification um, so that options were kept open so, um, again, on Clive Parry's advice, and you can see what an important influence he was in my life, uh, I joined Grey's Inn in my third year as an undergraduate ah. and started eating my dinners. You had to do 
12 terms of dinners, um, though they kindly let me off the last one because I did well in the final exams. Uh, And then I just took one term off to do a massive SWOT for the bar final exams. And um, I don't know, they weren't very, they didn't require deep academic knowledge, but they required quite a lot of fairly superficial knowledge, should we say, in those days. I mean, I don't think it was a very good system of qualifying for the bar, because you hadn't got the faintest idea of, of what things were really like in court. There was not much vocational element to it, really. But, um, you know, it was doable. Right. Uh, but it it involved papers in eight subjects, which was quite demanding, um, including civil and criminal procedure, which one learned entirely from the book. Right. Do this without ever having set foot in a courtroom. Uh, slightly crazy, really. But anyway, I I took that term, swatted Johnny hard, and things turned out well. So then I could be called to the bar in January 1965. And um, I remember you mentioning how when you were writing the bar exam, <laughs> it was you and one other woman? No, it wasn't quite that. There, there were more other women, but we were segregated from the men, so very different from Cambridge and made to sit at one end of Middle Temple Hall, well away from the men, which was a slightly strange experience. Yeah, that would seem odd. Yes, yes, having been fully integrated in Cambridge, why should we be treated in that way? Yes, Um, and that was so that you you recalled in 1965. Yes. Um, Which gets us to your time at Girton. an official fellow. Yes. In 1966. And how did you, did you apply for that position? Um, Yes, sort of. Um, The the college really rather desperately needed another tutor. And um, my husband was already a tutor at Downing, so I knew what the job involved. And... Uh, I was already doing quite a lot of supervision of Girton students, but I reckoned I could take on a, a tutorship um, looking after the the uh, general well-being of non-law students. Right. So uh, I said I was interested in, the, in that. I don't remember ever being um, interviewed for or anything like that. I don't think I was in competition with anybody. But in those days, the tutorship necessarily um, entailed an official fellowship. I mean, by that time, Poppy Jolowich was an official fellow in law at Girton. Um, She was also secretary to the college council. she did a little bit of teaching, and she was the the director of studies in in Lord Girton. Um, so I came in as sort of number two official fellow in law, right. and then uh, a couple of years or so later, uh, Poppy became bursar and handed over direction of studies to me. But she and I were actually the the first law fellows that Girton had ever had. We were um, admitted as fellows. She is an official fellow and I as a research fellow on the same day in October 1964. Because before that, um, a fellow in another subject had always had to direct studies in law. My director of studies was Marjorie Holland, an economist who was married to one of the great figures of the law faculty, Professor Harry Holland. Ah. Um, 
So she she was my director of studies, and it was she who interviewed me for admission, and she to whom I went to talk about supervision reports at the end of term. But she actually used to farm out the organizing of the supervisions to um, a fellow of one of the men's colleges. I had Geoffrey Wilson at Queen's, was my director of studies in the other sense for two years, and John Hall at St. John's for one year. And they made all the supervision arrangements. And uh, what, what are your, I mean, what stands out here in your first year as, as, uh, as, as an official fellow at Girton? What, what do you remember from that time? Um, well, if I have to be brutally honest, a student who tried to commit suicide. Um, they, people always say the worst things happen in your first term as a tutor. And that is certainly, in some cases, true. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I suppose I, at, at that stage, I was starting to take on more supervision anyway. Um, and I think uh, the number of... of women reading law was beginning to increase a little bit. And it was around then that um, Mary Arden and her friend Catherine Wacey, who later became Catherine Lester, um, became the first women to be officers of the University Law Society. Um, I can remember supervising them and great fun it was too. Before that, when when I was a mere research student in 63 to 4, I had supervised Brenda Hale. Ah. Um, And I think when you're very young, you you know when people are clever, and of course they were both extremely clever, but you don't really think I'm supervising a future member of the Supreme Court. Later on in life, there were times when I used to think, this person is going to go a very long way. <laughs> but but you don't, well, certainly I never thought about their being future judges, though certainly their performance as students qualified them very well to achieve that status. And, and what do you remember about, uh, about Brenda Hale? What, what were you supervising her in? Was she in law? Uh, yes. I, well, I, I was supervising her for the, the first year um, introductory paper to international law. And also for a subject that we all had to do in the first year back in those days called English Legal System, which was a pretty boring subject, but I suppose one acquired a lot of useful information from it. Uh, I, I, I have um, taught the, the, that course to, to a summer program. Right, right. And, and it's, pretty, it's a pretty good foundation if you don't really know anything about law. It's well, that's right. And, and there were some bits that were more interesting than others. For instance, the doctrine of precedent and statutory interpretation. They were fine. It was all the stuff about the structure of the courts could be a bit tedious, not to mention legal aid. That was the real rock bottom. Indeed. Um, okay, and so you're you're a few years in your election. Yes. Um, and and what, what's something you know, I, I, well, I did the occasional lecture in international law standing in for Clive Parry if he uh, was away somewhere. Um, The first course of lectures I did was in company law, uh, about which I now know absolutely nothing because it's all changed since then. And I didn't know anything when I had to write the lectures. Um, What happened was company law had been just a subject in the LLB, not an undergraduate subject. And 
a decision was taken to move it into the tripos. Um, I think this was connected with professional exemption requirements, which were changing so that people needed to have a knowledge of company law. And it so happened that Ken Polak, who was one of the leading company law people in the university at that time, was on leave in the year when this lecture course had to start. And so the faculty um, split the, the subject up between Len Seeley, who I think did more lectures than anybody else, and of course he knew a lot about it already. John Collier, who probably knew more than I did, but maybe not very much, and I, who had just done the bare rudiments for the bar finals. So my first eight lectures, as a part of a proper course, were on company law. Right. But that was just for the one year, because then Ken Polak came back from his leave and took over. Uh, you were spared that. <laughs> yes. John Collier, of course, being another very prominent international law lawyer. Well, he was part of the British Digest team. Mm. So... Um, he's a very dear friend. Right. And um, so at some point, um, it says here that you were a official fellow and lecturer in law from uh, 1966 to 1971. Yes. Uh, well, there was some sort of transition after 1971, was there? Well, what happened was in 1971, our daughter was born. Ah. And um, I, there were there was no maternity leave provided by colleges in those days. Um, and having waited a little while before having any children, I very much wanted to look after my own children, myself, and I didn't think that was compatible with continuing in my full-time role at Girton. Um, I had suffered slightly from um, having colleagues who had tried to do everything at once. And what tended to happen was that the fellows of Girton who didn't have children got put onto every conceivable committee. <laughs> and that was quite a big administrative burden. And I thought, no, I, I really don't want to be in the position of making other people work harder because I've got domestic responsibilities. And so I decided to, to resign from my fellowship. I did keep on a bit of supervision for two years. Um, so there are two academic years of Girton and Downing students who will remember cycling out to our house in Hills Avenue and being supervised by me quite often with a baby crawling about the floor. Ah, yes. But then when my second child was on the way, I thought, this isn't going to work. I've got to stop for a bit. So I decided to give up supervising. I was at the during this time, um, I was doing a bit of indexing. Um, by that time, the uh, Consolidated Treaty Series, edited by Clive Parry, had started to appear. So I was doing a bit of work. He, he wanted a comprehensive index of that series. It's something that I'm afraid I never got round to completing, but I was doing a bit of work on that which, of course, related back to what I'd already done in compiling the Index of British Treaties. Yes, indeed. And so your, your pause for, for child-rearing mm. was roughly 1973 to 1978. Yes, that's right. Um, mm. it, at, at that point in 78, I realized that I really was missing the contact with young people. And... Um, feeling a blank at the beginning of the academic year when everything was revving up. And 
So I decided to pick up supervising again. Um, it, it was a year when there was a change of tripos. And whereas in the tripos, which was not the tripos that, that I did, but the one that came in in about 1963, that involved um, contract in the first year and taught in the second year. Well, the change that came in in 1978 reversed that so that it was taught in the first year, contract in the second year. But that meant that in 1978, there were two years needing taught supervision, the first and the second year people. And my husband, John, was desperate to find another taught supervisor for Downing. And she said, do you think you could do it? And I'd always quite liked taught as an undergraduate. Uh, I was supervised by Richard Scott, Lord Scott, as he later became. He was then a young barrister who used to come at weekends and supervise in a very lively way. He ended up, of course, in the Supreme Court. Um, so I thought, well, I got my taught notes. So I thought, well, yes, I probably can do that. Um, I must say, before the first taught supervision, I was absolutely terrified. I thought, I'm not going to be able to do it. But in the end, it was all right, because taught is a fun subject to supervise. Um, it's a classic common law exercise, isn't it? It is. And, and as long as you don't um, let some of the, the dreadful things that happen to people get you down too much, it's all right. But I do remember... One girl whom I was supervising at some stage almost bursting into tears and saying, it's all so dreadful. Um, but you, know, you have to harden your heart a bit about these things. Uh, law is ever fuss, isn't it? Yes. So, yeah. All about the bad stuff. So, uh, so I went back to supervising, um, doing taught, and then picked up some international law again, um, supervision and, and contract, which I'd uh, supervised in previously. So, And of course had a very comprehensive background in. Yes. Yeah. And, and you, it seems to me that was really your favorite part of the, of this kind of work, wasn't it? You like, like the, the supervising, did you know? Yes, it was. Yes. Yes. I, 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 um, I always enjoyed supervising much more than lecturing. And um, I know some people have felt that there must have been some sort of discrimination so that I didn't get a university lectureship. The fact of the matter is I never wanted one and I never applied for one. And far from feeling any discrimination in the law faculty, I've always found it a thoroughly welcoming and inclusive place. Mm -hmm. So um, there's, there's no no trace of any discrimination. You've always felt welcomed. Absolutely. Yes, yes. Oh, okay. And so let me think of um, 1974, so just mm. around the time when you were pulling back mm. from your, from your mm. teaching, uh, responsibilities. That's when you became involved with the um, the British Yearbook of the yes. NSO Law. Yes, um, that 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 was a most fortunate thing. Um, Robbie Jennings was the senior editor of the British Yearbook of International Law, and he, uh, the then assistant editor, resigned, and he was looking for somebody to take over and uh, asked me if I would be interested in doing it. And it really was the ideal work for me. Uh, it involved um, copy editing the typescripts that had been accepted by the editors for publication. So getting them all ready for the press. And um, then 
the proofs would come to me and I would read them myself, send them out to the contributors, get their corrected copies back, um, do a collated copy, uh, and the editors would read the proofs as well and send their comments to me and, and send a collated copy back to Oxford University Press. Deal with the second final proofs, um, do the table of cases and the index. But I could do almost all of this from home. Um, I sometimes needed to come into the squire to check up on something. I, if you if you see a footnote that doesn't look quite right that needs checking, um, often necessary to to chase things up, but it 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 was a job I enjoyed doing. And it put me in touch with um, international lawyers really all over the world um, who contributed articles or case notes to the yearbook. And uh, I sometimes felt a little bit as if my house was turning into a postal sorting office, parcels of things arriving and going out again. But... um, no, it, it it was an ideal job for me, really. And, um, of course, in those days, printing by Oxford University Press was all done by the old hot metal typesetting process. Um, so you had to be very, very careful that the typescripts that went to them really showed what was required clearly enough. It had to be perfect. It had to be perfect. And it was a question of making sure that everything complied with the OUP house rules, like spelling organized with a Z, not an S. And um, so it, it required a lot of accuracy, but um, that's something I like. And, and it's so, fascinating to me because, of course, I I never knew this era um, to to have an internationally distributed journal mm. and to deal with the authors by mail. I mean, I mean, yes. Oh, yes. It was so slow and time consuming. It was indeed. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the person I used to call my pen friend was James Crawford, um, and I think I may be the first person in Cambridge who had any contact with James. He had just finished his DPhil at Oxford under Ian Brownlee, who was the number two editor, second to Robbie Jennings. And Ian had recruited James to contribute the public international law case note section of the British yearbook just at the time when I became assistant editor. Well, James had gone back to Australia. He'd become a lecturer at Adelaide University. And so he used to send me his notes, or well, he used to send his notes to the editors and they would send them on to me by airmail. I would send the proofs to him by airmail. Back they came by airmail. So it was at least a week each. Yes, each way, <laughs> um, but it worked, and expectations were totally different then. Um, you, everybody knew it was going to take a long time to put a volume together. <laughs> Interesting, and so you were able to do that. What were there any other aspects of of the, of the work for the university that you maintained during the seventies? Well, um. I I acted as an assessor in the Tripos exams every year from 1966 until my retirement in 2007, except for the one year when our daughter was born. And she was born on the last day of the Easter full term, so... Um, 
marking papers then might have been a bit inconvenient. No doubt. <laughs> um, I think I had been appointed an assessor and had to resign. <laughs> yes, and fair and love. Uh, and so you, your, your editor, your uh, or co-editor, you've resumed uh, tutoring since yeah. 1978, uh, going forward. Uh, at some point, you started involving... Now, as, as a note editor, Cambridge yes. Journal, I mean, I look back at your, your history, you started publishing way back in 1964, I think your first note was. Oh, yes, I think that was one that... 63. 63, that, yes. Um, it was before we were married, but uh, I wrote it jointly with my future husband. Right. <laughs> Although I noticed that um, the ones afterwards, you just wrote all yourself. Oh, yes, I did. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. You didn't yep. really do much scholarship with him, did you, at Utah, doing his own thing? No, um, no, I didn't. I was closely involved in um, actually typing and revising the volume of the British Digest of International Law that he prepared, which was the volume on consuls. Right. Um, I, I spent one summer... Um, working very closely with him and Clive Parry on the, the final version of that volume. And, well, I suppose I was rather largely doing it as a typist. Um, I, between leaving school and coming up to Girton, uh, I'd had six months um, because in those days people did the, what was known as the third year sixth, you applied in the term after your A-levels. Mm -hmm. And having got my... Girton Place, I left school, and I did a six-month secretarial course. Yeah. So um, I was quite a good typist, and therefore I helped out with that, but also with, with a, just a little bit of input into the content. I had no doubt immense help with, with, uh, with critique. And, <laughs> well, I hope so. Editing yeah. and so on. Yes. Well, so. mm -hmm. as, as I would expect. Mm -hmm. um, um, but you, you took an interest in in, in case notes. Mm. You ended up doing a lot of that with the Cambridge Law Journal, and I noticed that um, as I didn't look at all, and I just kind of randomly picked a bunch. Mm. Awful lot of tort and contract, not not a lot of international law there. In your no, case notes. no. Well, um, yes, <laughs> the, I was by the time I was I was writing most of those. I was. Um, supervising in both contract and tort and in international law. But in 1992, I became secretary to the Girton College Council, which involved quite a bit of administrative work. And um, the other subject that I supervised was uh, commercial law. And I realized that I just couldn't keep going as a supervisor in four subjects and do the administrative work as secretary to the council and be a tutor. So uh, I decided to stop supervising in international law because I knew that through my British yearbook work, which of course was still going on, I could very easily get that subject back right. if I wanted to to supervise it again. I think um, also I always found that the common law subjects were actually more fun for supervision purposes mm. than international law because it was easier to do a problem-based mm. approach and to have a set of facts and discuss them in a supervision. Right. Yeah, where international law is a lot more... Uh... It's a bit more theoretical. You uh, obviously you can do a certain amount on a problem basis, but not quite so much. No. And of course, it isn't because it's international law. It isn't entirely predicated on common law doctrine, yeah, is it? It's quite. Not, it's kind of right. Mm -hmm. um, interesting. Um, but you did. I, I didn't count. But I, 
it looks to me it's a good maybe 25 <laughs> or 30 case notes. I'm sure there are many people who have written many, many more than that. But it was it was after I'd gone back in my second spell as a fellow of Girton, um, I think I had contributed a case note or two by then, and John Collier, who was the convening case note editor at that stage, asked me to join the team of note editors. And um, we all had a lot of fun together going through uh, case notes that people had submitted. And then when he resigned as convening note editor, I took over from him. Um, with Michael Pritchard was then the editor of the journal. And it was lovely to work with him because he was one of my first supervisors. He supervised me for both my first and second years. So it was very nice to work with Michael again. <laughs> and by the end you're into the 90s, you're actually getting into the era of email. Yes, yes, <laughs> indeed. Um, I think I, I started using email in 1996 um, because I realized that some of my college co colleagues, particularly the engineers at Girton, were getting annoyed because they couldn't send things by so I thought, what the hell is email? Yes. I, I thought, I've got to learn to do this. <laughs> and um, in, I spent large parts of one long vacation with the assistance of the college computer officer in mastering it. <laughs> All right. And of course, I know when you have a tie, you were fluent. Yes, that was no problem. Yes. Transition. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. I mean, well, uh, obviously, by that time, computers had become fairly general, and um, I was using a, uh, an old-fashioned computer, one of those little classic box ma Macintoshes. Yeah, yes, yes. Well, on which at least you know you could do corrections. It wasn't a question of having to start all over again or, or correct things with the horrible pink fluid that one used for correcting. That, that yeah. White, yeah. cakey stuff. Yeah, yes, that's it. right. That's so, right. Yes, okay. yes. Or if you were doing things on stencils, you used some pink stuff that, that smelled peculiar. Um, but anyway. Yeah, I, in fact, yeah. I remember using a razor blade in, in, in grade school to, <laughs> with, with those, um, what do you call them, those carbon... Yes, yes, carbon papers. Yes, yes. Was, mm. but anyway, but 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 at least uh, computers had come in. But yes, e email um, started to become more general, um, and I found that with the British Yearbook, that was both an advantage and a disadvantage. Um, certainly, things could come much more quickly. But it gave people too much opportunity to change their minds. And I would think that I'd got a typescript completely ready for the press, and then another correction would come in by email, and it had to be sorted out all over again. So there was a downside to it, as well as the obvious advantages. Would you say that it meant more time on each article generally had to be spent as a result? I don't know that it was more time, but there was somehow a higher irritation. Mm. More hassle. <laughs> more hassle, yes. Okay. <laughs> and um, so we've talked about your time the law journal, the mm -hmm. editor. Uh, I can't help thinking over all of these years, there must have been a number of people who, who we haven't yet discussed who, mm. who, who, who uh, made an important impression on your life who were very important in your in your career as it progressed. Um, um, well, 
If we go right back to my time as an undergraduate, um, I had some splendid supervisors, some who were less splendid. <laughs> no names mentioned. The person who made a huge impression on me was Cape W. Wedderburn, Bill Wedderburn, he was always known as. Um, he was a fellow of Clare at the time, and uh, he supervised me in my final year in contract, because the way we did contract in the tripos that I took was, in the second year, an introductory paper to contract and taught, which had bits of each of the subjects, and then in the third year, a full paper in contract, full paper in taught. So I went to Bill Wedderburn for contract, and um, he he was a brilliant man. But he went off fairly soon after that to the LSE. Uh, there was something that sort of the questions he asked were so perceptive. There, there was a great contrast because the, the lectures in that year, most of them were given by Professor Jack Hampson. Yes. And he had a great idea that you could study every topic in contract on the basis of just two cases. Wow. Okay. So, uh, for instance, with mistake you took two contrasting cases. And with frustration, you took two contrasting cases. He did the two cases that turned on the postponed coronation of King Edward VII, which had contrasting outcomes. Anyway, he discussed these pairs of cases at length, extracting principles from them. And that was interesting, but it meant that his audience had to do a great deal of donkey work for their supervisions. Mm -hmm. Wedderburn, by contrast, issued huge reading lists, masses and masses and masses of cases. And in order to keep up with what he was saying in supervisions, you jolly well had to look at what he'd asked you to look at. And so he was a very demanding supervisor, but a tremendously rewarding one. He really helped me to understand the subject in, in a marvelous way. So I found him a, a very inspiring person, although I, he was very left-wing. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think anybody would describe me as left-wing. On his door, he had a CND poster, which had a photograph of the Conservative Prime Minister Macmillan peering out of the CND badge in the middle of the poster. Yeah. So um, that was interesting. Uh, but um, they were interesting times. <laughs> what role did, did politics play in, in, over the course of your your study? Very little, very little really. Um, certainly not party politics. Um, of course, international affairs, quite another question, because in the year that I was taking the LLB, 62 to 3, that was the year of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, in my first term of the international law, LLB, and so we had endless discussions of whether quarantine was a concept of international law, how it differed from blockade, whether it was legitimate to have a quarantine without a declaration of war, all that sort of thing. Right. So that was all very fascinating. And, and that reminds me, of course, that you grew up in the heat 
of the Cold War. Yes, I suppose so. Yes. <laughs> Which is something that um, is well dissipated, you know, by the time I got into kind of early adulthood. It yes, kind of cool yes, off. yes, um, yeah. Because there, there were, and a nuclear war was a genuine threat, was it not? Oh, certainly. Yes, yes. Uh, it, 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 it was indeed. Um, we, I, I can't remember any particular precautions against it. Though, of course, nowadays one knows quite a lot. And, um, for a long time, there were buildings in Brooklyn's Avenue, which I believe were to be used in the event of. Um, well, they have like a bunker underneath. Yeah. Right. Yes. And of course, your father was a nuclear scientist. He was, yes. Yes. And uh, I never knew exactly what he had done in the Second World War. Um, but he was for quite a while on a Pacific island. Oh, where, uh, okay. Yes. And, and I, I, th I think it was uh, to do with the development of weapons. But. Of course, he could never tell us exactly what he'd been doing. Official secrets. Yes, yes. <laughs> Seems understandable. Mm. You know, yeah. Yes. Later, he became a great advocate for the peaceful uses of atomic energy. And um, he, he finished his career at Harwell as... Uh, an industrial liaison officer, and he used to travel a great deal um, explaining the benefits to which atomic energy could be put. Um, and um, so if we get into the, the later years of your career, mm -hmm. so we're into the late 1890s, you are Primarily, if I understand you correctly, supervising and note editing. Yes. Um, and, and what do you remember about that period of time in your career? Um, well, it was quite busy. Um, I, I, I suppose I was probably doing about eight hours a week of supervision. Um, Every week? Yes. Which that's a lot. I mean, that's well. I suppose it's quite a lot. But the the um, I mean, <clears throat> university teaching officers, I think, were supposed not to do more than six hours of supervision. That was a rule that my husband ignored totally throughout his career. Um, somebody who was a college teaching officer was normally expected to do 12 hours a week. So I was getting up towards the point um, when I could do a, a larger amount. Of course, my children by that time were well launched in school. Um, and uh, I was just beginning to think, well, maybe I could go back to a full-time position. And um, in 1989, Girton advertised a fellowship in law. And so I thought, shall I? Shan't I? Will they even look at me after all this time? But I decided to put in for it. And um, Poppy Jonovich was extremely encouraging when she knew that I was interested in it. Um, I remember saying to her, well, what, do you want somebody to teach? And she said, absolutely anything that you want to teach. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was encouraging. Um, the Stephanie Palmer by that time was already in post at Girton as um, the sole law fellow. But of course, she was constitutional law was her main interest, though she did um, teach uh, 
EC law as it then was, and and I think legal history as well. Um, but anyway, I, d I decided to put in for it, and I was interviewed with a number of other people, and I was lucky enough to get the appointment. So um, back I went to Girton. Uh, at this point, it, it was it was quite easy from um, the domestic point of view. My um, my daughter started at Oxford that autumn. My son was away at boarding school. Um, although I'd been supervising for various colleges, the great bulk of my supervision had been for Downing, where the numbers reading law were large. And that same autumn, when I went back to Girton, Graham Virgo arrived as a fellow of Downing. Right. And indeed took on, I think, some of the teaching that I had been doing. Um, he had, of course, been an undergraduate there, and I had supervised him. So it's been a tremendous joy to see his progress and most recently to see him elected as Master of Downing. Yes. 